Thank you, Alex. Let us open the scriptures so we can continue in our worship of the Lord. To Second Timothy, uh, chapter two, and we'll commence in our series, and we'll pick up on verse fourteen of chapter two of Second Timothy. By the way, it's good to see where's Migna and James. Oh, at the back there. Good to see them back. And Rian, I trust you guys had a great holiday. Enjoyed the warmer northern hemisphere for a little while. It's good to see you back. Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14 through to end of 19. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved, yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Verse 16, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenius and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. And I'm sure God will add a blessing to his word this morning. A way of introduction, I was thinking about over the next coming few months, the pastoral search committee and you all, to some degree or another, will be considering potential pastors as I move aside, God willing, in the new year. And by the way, that pastoral search committee has met and um, a plan has been put in in progress. A letter will be sent inviting certain men and certain to certain churches rather than putting out a general ad for another pastor. And so for those who are asking questions what's happening, the Pastoral Search Committee has met and things are um, in progress. But we as a church will all be involved in this pastoral consideration to some degree or other. And you'll see that by each of you having different preferences on how you want your new pastor to operate. Some will have and want the new man's focus to be on communicating well in and out of the pulpit. Some will want his focus to be people and family orientated. Others will see his focus needs to be a team player in the church. And still some will want his primary focus to be on doctrinal clarity. Now all these aspects are good and healthy for any pastor to have. But we can ask the question, when it all boils down, what should the pastor's primary focus be in the ministry that the Lord has called them to? Well, this morning in the section of Scripture we have read, 
we have the answer spelled out clearly for us. This is important because if your pastor, your shepherd, your elders are not focused on what they should be, the church will become weak and vulnerable to all sorts of ideologies and philosophies. The church will become open to false teaching. It will become open to spiritual ruin and ungodliness, according to our text. And so I introduce this message today this way because we live in a day when too many church leaders focus on secondary or even unbiblical ideas for the direction and ethos of their churches. What happens when that kind of leadership kicks in is that orthodoxy is so often thrown out and it was replaced with informality, new fads, gimmicks or whatever might appease the pew's set of whims. Being relevant soon becomes their focus and primary consideration. This is where pastors or leaders of the church lose their focus. They become distracted from what their primary focus should be. I was in Adelaide the other day, going down um, on North Terrace, and um, I was set to wondering when I passed this church building and had on its display wall, traditional but with modern thinking. You may recall those words. I can only imagine that the focus of this church is very different from what it used to be. Maybe it's now for the better, I hope so. (laughs) I'm not too sure. But so often these days, a change of focus in the church means, or in any church means that, they tend to become pragmatic. In other words, churches are more and more engaging whatever it takes to pull a crowd. Some engage whatever emotional tools it takes to make people feel good and comfortable and to keep the pews and the church coffers full and overflowing, whatever it takes. That's pragmatism. That's the focus of some churches. This kind of focus is far from what God instructs it to be. But worse than that, when leaders of the church become distracted and lose a correct biblical focus... What happens is they often open the floodgates for false teaching which ultimately results in the spiritual ruin of its people. Many a church in our city, as you will know, used to be known as a city of churches, right? I don't know what that means in our day and age, but many a church in our fair city that once held tightly the tenets of the gospel of God's saving grace, who once held tightly to the inerrant truth of the word of God who once held tightly to the substitutionary death of Christ but sadly so many of these churches are now given over to human philosophy universalism, salvation by self-effort and multiple other ideas of what the scripture may mean all in the sake of relevancy in other words they've become distracted, they've lost their focus And now many churches, sad to say, are in spiritual ruin or at the best, nothing but social clubs. So what should the primary focus of any pastor be? 
as he pursues his calling and the leading and shepherding the flock of God. This is important for us all as any pastor, any church leader is vulnerable like anyone else to become distracted, to lose focus. Hence, they need your support and your prayers. So in these verses, we have the Apostle Paul, the veteran apostle, delivering to this younger Timothy, the pastor of the Ephesus church, some do's and don'ts of the ministry so that this young pastor, 30 plus something years old, so that his focus will remain clear and undistracted. And the first one that he tells us is keep focused. Always keep the main thing the main thing. We see this in verse 14. You see, Timothy, as we have reiterated over and over again, was a timid man, right? And he was under pressure and was indicating that his focus in the ministry was being tested to the max. He was vulnerable to become distracted, and Paul discerned this. Even though at this time Paul was not in Ephesus, he was in ministry. He was in prison back in Rome. And so uh, Paul discerned this by whatever communication and, and, and words that were coming back to him, that Timothy was vulnerable. And the reason for this were many, but there were false teachers that had infiltrated the church there, and more than likely some of these false teachers were leaders in the church. They were clever men. They were able to dialogue with words, maybe better than Timothy could. They had ability to debate, and they were a real threat to the spiritual health of the church at Ephesus. These false teachers, Paul earlier had warned the Ephesian elders themselves, by the way, that this would happen. This wasn't something new. Paul knew that this was going to happen. And he reminded the elders on that day, if you'll remember the occasion in Acts chapter 20, that savage wolves will come among you. In other words, they're not going to attack you from without. They will be within your midst. And even Timothy himself was not ignorant of this occurring. Let me read to you 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 to 4, and verse 18 to 19, where we have Paul instructed Timothy. This is what he said to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than a stewardship from God that is by faith. This charge I entreat to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So Timothy was not ignorant of this uprising and the threat that he was experiencing within the church because now it was really happening. It was really happening. And Timothy was here in this church to correct and put right what was wrong, but it was wearing this young pastor down. 
He was in danger of becoming distracted and losing focus. So how was Timothy to keep on track? How was he to keep focused? How was he to combat this destructive enemy that was causing havoc in the assembly? Well, Paul instructs Timothy to keep the main thing the main thing. In other words, preach the truth, Timothy. Preach the gospel. That is, his focus is, as we see here in the beginning of verse 14, remind them. You see that? Remind them. Remind the assembly. Remind the church of these things. In other words, that has the idea of continually reminding them. The word has an ongoing effect. Persistently keep reminding them. But we need to ask a question. Remind them of what? Remind them of what? Of these things. The verse tells us of these things. In other words, that is what Paul had spoken of in prior verses that we looked at last time we were together on this. The things here refers to the gospel truth. The responsibility even going right back to the beginning of chapter 2 of passing this on to others who will in turn teach others. And in doing this, Timothy, you'd be like a good soldier, you'd be like a disciplined athlete, and you'd be like a hard-working farmer in doing this gospel work. And always remember too, Timothy, that Jesus is risen from the dead and is alive forevermore, and that God's truth knows no bounds. These are the things he's spoken of in prior verses. And the primary purpose of God's work on earth is the salvation of his elect, his chosen ones. Remind them of these things, Timothy. In other words, the main thing, the main focus of your pastor, teacher, is to continually preach the truth of sound gospel doctrine. Why? So that God's truth and the gospel cannot be forgotten. You may think, well, how can we do that? You may not forget the gospel truth here, but folks, I can go to many churches. I know many churches where once, as I said before, the gospel was held strongly. But now you go and ask a member in the pew what the gospel is about and there will be a, um, uh, uh, um, uh, they're struck for words. Sad to say. Why? Because they have not been continually reminded of the truth of the gospel. We should be always ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us, right? But sad to say, so many who profess Christianity and profess to know Christ cannot give an answer. And so Timothy was to remind them of these things. You see, his main concern was not to be about social justice, which is sweeping and rampant within the evangelical church today, I might say. Social justice, political reform, or better deals for the homeless or for, or for the poor immigrants. That is not to be the focus, the main focus, the primary focus of the pastor teacher in the church. He must not be distracted by anything that would hinder him keeping the main thing being the main thing. Because if your pastor, teacher becomes distracted, if he reneges and gets caught up with any peripheral matters, as I've mentioned, matters that are not about the spiritual health and well-being of the saints, useless things, unprofitable things, it only invites one thing, that's ruin and destruction of the assembly. Look at what Timothy was to do. 
Paul reminds him here of the solemn responsibility, by the way, of both the preacher and the, and the hearer. You see that? He said, solemnly charge them in the presence of God. That is, Timothy, you make sure that your people know and understand that although God is always present, he's always present, that's why we call him omniscient, he's never out of, the, out of touch, as it were. You remind them and, and make sure they understand that although God is always and ever present, his presence rises to another level when his truth in the word of God is taught. That is when he is especially present, like today, because the truth of God is being taught and God, folks, is in your face, whether you like it or not. And being in the presence of the Almighty, you know what that should do? It should curb error and inspire a healthy fear of him, right? I hope it does. I hope it does. My dear people, whenever God's word is open and taught, you better believe it. God is present and expects you to reverently fear him by your willing obedience and submissive obedience. But what was the issue in Pastor Timothy's day that was specifically causing problems? What was the issue? We see here one thing, it was words. (laughs) Words. Cleverly, humanly engineered words. And so Paul was saying this, Timothy, keep the main thing the main thing by charging your people not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of its hearers. Don't you get caught up in that either, Timothy, but you remind your people not to get caught up in it either. You are to lead by example. In other words, even though there are those who are clever with words, and we know people who are clever with words, we come across them all the time. Those who are great debaters, those who seem to be wise and knowledgeable in all matters, even on religious discussion. You must not be distracted and wrangle. The word wrangle there has the idea of you're not meant to enter into war with them. You're not, meant, you're not to enter into competition with them in order to beat them at their own game. It's tempting sometimes, isn't it? Paul says, if you do, you're using human wisdom and reason, just like they're using to undermine the veracity of God's word. So as they're undermining the veracity and the truth of God's word with their humanly engineered, clever, debating words that that comes from a presupposition that God is not real or whatever it might be, you're not to enter into that playing field, that, that where they're at, because you know that God is real and God is true. You see, folks, arguing and debating with someone who presupposes God's word is not the inerrant truth from God. You know what? It's a waste of time. A waste of time. Satan loves using, through human agents, words and jargon and psychology and philosophy to wage war with people's minds and discernment. He loves that. Just as when the JW or the Mormons come knocking at your door or any other false cult who, wants, who puts no stock at all in the absolute authority of God's word, so neither are we to put any weight or dependence on clever jargon of man's wisdom, no matter how biblical it may sound. These people are like Paul states in chapter 3 of verse 7 of this letter. They're always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. We live in a great day of knowledge these days, right? A great day of knowledge. You can learn heaps. 
Switch on to Google. You can go, you can, anything and everything. There's no lack of knowledge. It's one of those signs of the times of the end of the age. There'll be an increase in knowledge. And it's the same with men who are opposed to the truth of God's word. And uh, we're not to wrangle with them, not to uh, war with them with human words. And, um, well, Timothy and every pastor is instructed that we're not to wrangle with about words as they are unprofitable. But more than that, they're not only unprofitable, look what the result of it is. It leads to the ruin of the hearers. The word ruin here is a word that you'll know well in your English. It's a Greek word called catastrophe, which needs no explanation. And we all know that we may have friends, we may have family. We all know those who once were responsive in a way, maybe soft towards the gospel. But upon being seduced by human ideology, they're now spiritual shipwrecks can we say nowhere I have a friend of mine who once became fascinated a contemporary we grew up we went to the same Bible class together we sat under the same preaching together we twice a day on Sundays we went to church we, we had meals together a great friend of mine we, we were farming together and then he became fascinated with debates and words on trying to reason out logically the triunity of God. Long story short, he got so carried away with that debate and human reason and all that, he, his life was made an absolute shipwreck. He goes nowhere today in church. Hasn't kind of denied the faith, but he's really, really off track in the gospel, in the work of the Spirit of God. And so all because he was being seduced by words. You see, those who listen to false teaching or their own ideas, and we can't even listen to our own ideas, right? About what truth is, can be easily turned away from gospel truth. Even those who are in the faith, I might say, even those who are in the faith can be ruined, can be made spiritual shipwreck when they heed the persuading words of culture or human religiosity. Whether it be false teaching on morality, and we have heaps of that, in our secular world, and sad to say, we have heaps of, it in, heaps of it in our church. Whether it be teaching on the sanctity of life, on feminism, on homosexuality, on gender equality, on marriage or self-esteem, you name it, we get this in our faces every single day like never before. As I said, not only from secular sources, but even in the church and religious bodies that are enticing Christians to accept what is contrary to Scripture. These false words become destructive and, and they bring spiritual ruin with believers when believers listen to them and then they list their ideas and they list what they have heard above the word of God. They're destructive. So the focus of the pastor is to keep the main thing the main thing by continually and persistently reminding his people of gospel truth so that they may discern error when they are confronted with it. Okay, secondly, keep focused. Your approval is under God's scrutiny. We see this in verse 15. 
Paul's second command about the focus of a pastor is that he is to be diligent. You see that word there? Diligent. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. The idea of being diligent is the pastor is to give maximum effort. This is calling. This is what he is to do. He is to, be unres- he is to give unreserved commitment to the task of interpreting and examining the text of Scripture. And any pastor worth his salt will be diligent in doing this. Why? So that he may impart God's truth as clearly and as completely and accurately as possible to the flock that God has entrusted to him, the local church. By the way, it's not to win the applauds of men for his speaking ability. Nor is it to please himself, but to present yourselves approved to God. You see that there? Present yourself approved to God, Timothy. That is, your pastor's focus in the ministry is to work diligently at his task in order to pass the approval test, I call it. To pass the approval test. That is, the scrutiny of God himself. His focus is to serve God in such a way that it glorifies and pleases him. The pastor is first and foremost answerable and countable to God, folks. He is. Not the people God has entrusted to them, even though they give him his fortnightly or monthly stipend. This should be the focus of any who preach and teach God's, God's word. We should be able to say with Paul, and as he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing to men, but God who examines our hearts. The pastor teacher is also to be a workman. He is to be a workman who unashamedly is focused on what? On rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, as there is absolute shame in propagating false truth and false doctrine and false ideas, contrary to Scripture, all in the name of God, by the way, there is no shame for the pastor who is approved of God for diligently declaring God's truth. No shame in that. He is the man who accurately handles the word of truth. This means accurately handling, it means to cut straight. It comes from the idea of a, of a tradesman who, who cuts a straight line. Alex will know how important it is to cut a straight line in pieces of timber or whatever that might be. Or a, or a farmer ploughing a straight furrow down his field. Or even a bricklayer setting a straight line for his bricks. How important that is. This is where the idea comes from here. In other words, there is a right way to teach God's word and a wrong way. There is a straight way. And there's a dodgy way. He must first thoroughly observe and study the text. That's his first responsibility. Is. He must be a man who observes and studies the text in its original. I don't want to bog you down here. In its original, literally, and grammarly historical context so he must go right back and he must okay what was happening here in the time what do these words mean in the original language and and, and what kind of literary context is it historical or is it poetic or, or is it apocalyptic literature he must understand all that 
in order to gain a right interpretation, in order to gain, well, what does this text mean? This He must do that to order to have a right meaning. And it's only then can he rightly apply the text that he's to bring to his modern-day congregation. You know what? The most blatant way that Scripture is wrongly taught today is when there is no due diligence by the pastor in the study. And as a result, you will see Scripture being twisted out of a context in the pulpit. So no due diligence in the study, you're going to have dodgy messages in the pulpit. But more than that, often the Scripture twisting is usually done to justify some sinful actions or some personal presuppositions. For example, if you want to justify from Scripture that homosexuality is a loving relationship, therefore a viable alternative lifestyle, if you want to justify a selfish lust for wealth and health and pleasure, if you want to justify sexual relationships before marriage, if you want to justify a preconceived idea that God is so loving that everyone's going to go to heaven, if You can find on any of these matters and a whole lot more, you can find texts in isolation when read completely out of context. You can find texts that will justify and you say, hey, look. Your pastor must be diligently focused on accurately handling the word of truth so to be approved of God. Pray that he would never be distracted from that. Third one, keep focused on profitable dialogue will bring about spiritual ruin. We see this in verses 16 to 18. A third danger that was threatening Timothy's focus was that of worldly and empty chatter or unprofitable discussion I'd put here in my notes. There was a command from Timothy here, for Timothy here. Paul says, avoid it. Avoid it. Now, Paul is not speaking of gossiping and idle chit-chat that we can be caught up in. Now, that in itself can do untold damage, and we have other texts of Scripture that warn us about that. But here, but here, this worldly and empty chatter is speaking of discussion that perverts and twists the truth of Scripture. He's referring here to words of human origin that are used to change and undermine the truth of Scripture. And might I say, folks, there are heaps of clever men who use clever human arguments to refute the clear teaching of God. Heaps of them. Entering into these kind of dialogues can distract even the most able of pastors, like Timothy was, and in in danger of being distracted. The most able of pastors... And so the focus of the pastor teacher is not to be distracted by these things. He is to avoid them as they only result in what? What does it say it results in? Further ungodliness. You see, folks, entering into discussion where all opinions about truth and eternal matters are considered equal is dangerous. Very dangerous. By the way, this is not about refuting blatant error here which we must. We must refute blatant error. This is about listening to error as though it were an equally valid opinion on truth to what the Bible teaches. There's no such thing as a level playing field, as I mentioned earlier on, when it comes to discussing eternal matters. 
This is dangerous because that kind of discussion really stops there. It really stops there. It spreads its infection. It finds listening ears. It leads to further ungodliness. It's like a gangrene sore. It spreads to others and does its damage. And the pastor, like a doctor, who we have some in our company today, when a doctor is exposed to infection and disease, they use all their expertise and knowledge to treat their patients to stop that disease dead in its tracks. Right? Is that right now? Where is she? Oh, she's out. Benji? Yeah, he's smiling. Just like the doctor, the pastor also, when exposed to error, needs to apply biblical truth and truth to stop error and sin also dead in its tracks. We're not to dilly-dally around with it. We're not to make room with it. We're not to be politically correct kind of thing and, and use that smoochy kind of idea where we must accommodate all opinions. No way. He's not to dialogue and discuss with his patients, can we say, the problem in order to come up with a user-friendly and political correct tonic. In our text, the issue was that of two false teachers mingling with the church and their suggestion was that the resurrection of the dead had, had already taken place. You just imagine about that. The resurrection of the dead had already taken place. You mentioned the upset and, and then the questioning minds and, and those who were maybe young in the faith. Well, is this true or is this not? These men are clever. They've got words. They, they're knowledgeable. In other words, these two men in the Ephesus church were distorting the truth about the true resurrection, which was distorting the hope and the very heart of the gospel itself. The sin in turn upset or overthrew the faith of some. That is, it kept some from true saving faith. How sad is that? That's disastrous. Absolutely disastrous. My dear people, you need to pray that your pastor not be distracted by unprofitable dialogue resulting in ruin and that he would keep focused by refuting error with God's truth. Fourthly, keep focused because God has promised an irrevocable reward. We see this in verse 19. And here Paul finally gives Timothy a fourth reason why he and any pastor needs to remain focused in the ministry and not be distracted. It says, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. In other words... Unlike those who trust in false doctrine and failing religious schemes, which are all destined to eternal destruction, by the way, God's firm foundation stands. Now, I honestly believe that the firm foundation here that Paul has got in mind is speaking of the church, because when we look at the context, it is all about the church, the assembly. Back in 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is seen as the pillar and ground of truth. And this will stand forever. Even Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Matthew 16.18. Now what better incentive for any pastor or any believer do we need than this divine promise, right? God is in control. He will build his church. The true church of every born-again believer is God's firm foundation. 
it will not fail. And all of those belonging to his church and everyone here who is born again by the Spirit of God and belongs to the Lord are what? That's sealed. You see that? That's sealed. I love this word. He has sealed us, that is, God has sealed us with his irrevocable promise of eternal ownership. And all those who are born again and saved through Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ alone, those who are adopted into his eternal family, have become his bride, his church. We have God's divine seal of eternal ownership stamped indelibly upon us, folks. We have. We belong to him for eternal and irreversible blessing. Can't get better than that, right? And the wonderful truth of this promise is that we're not reliant on what we feel, or what we think or know to give us eternal security and blessing. Now, we do have feelings and we do think about ourselves and it's good to think about ourselves. We are to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. But our salvation, our security is not wrapped up in how we feel. Because sometimes I feel like still an outright rebellious sinner. So what does that mean? I'm unsaved? I get it. No, no, no. God speaks of once saved, always saved, that we belong to him, right? It means that I need to come before God and repent of my sin. If we, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's written to believers, not unbelievers, by the way. 1 John 1 8. We've been sealed. We belong to him. And it's all bound up fully in the Lord knows those who are his. You see that? It's not what we know, it's what the Lord knows and what he's written in his word. Count it to be true, he tells the Roman believers. Count it to be true. Count it to be true. Three times in that chapter 6. Reckon this to be true. And speaks about the wonderful place that we have in Christ. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they will follow me. And he continues to assure us and says in John 10, verse 27 and 28, and um, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand folks it may be at times that we're confused and we stumble and our faith is weak and at times our faith can be tested by trials and tribulations you're not alone in this even the apostle Paul had this but one thing that we can know for sure there is nothing that can corrupt or destroy God's people. Why? Because God has chosen us. Jesus stated with clarity in John 6, and all that the Father has given me shall come to me. And then he promises, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him on that last day. My dear people, all those who belong to Jesus Christ are safe in the hollow of God's hand. 
We have been sealed for the day of redemption, the day that we're taken up into glory, whether it be through the valley of the shadow of death or whether it be when the Lord snatches us out. We're looking for that day, right? We've been sealed. Another way that God has affirmed his seal upon his people is that they will love the Lord. You see that? You notice that? Because we've been given a new heart, this drives a, a deep longing to please him and live for him. Even though we disappoint ourselves miserably, and I'm sure we disappoint the Lord in the way we walk, but he gives us a new heart that longs to please him amidst all the difficulties and ups and downs of life. It says this by saying, they will name Jesus as Lord. All that call upon the name of the Lord, all that... It says here, all the Lord, those who are those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord. Everyone who names the name of the Lord, you know what they'll do? They'll love the Lord and they will hate wickedness. They'll flee, they'll abstain. There will be a coinciding hatred for sin and wickedness. We've been sealed. My dear people, God is doing a mighty work through his gospel through the church that's what he uses the church his people and your pastor present and future your shepherds must never be distracted from the gospel work he needs to be focused in the ministry in his ministry by keeping the main thing the main thing shall we pray